we live in a world, and particularly in a country in America, that is saturated with belief in God. The most, uh, any survey, I'm not a huge fan of surveys because I know how distorted they can be, but nonetheless, any survey done by, by the, the Pew Trust or, or any reputable um, journalistic ent en enterprise will, will show that about 90% of Americans say that they believe in God. Um, though the, the number of those who don't believe in God is, is apparently, purportedly, on the rise, um, not least in New England, um, the, the reality is we still live in a context, at least, that's saturated with belief in God. But I wonder if the reality of uh, that is something that we don't necessarily see on display in the world that we know. In other words, even though the context that we live in is saturated with a belief in God, I would suggest to you that our context is not saturated with evidence of a belief in God. And what I mean to say is that belief in God for many of us tends to function more like belief in the Loch Ness Monster or belief in UFOs. It's interesting. It's uh, something that might cause a sort of fascination in us from time to time. It's uh, something that we might focus on from one, you know, one day out of the year or something like that. But it doesn't make any difference in, in the way that we live, in the way that we, we actually walk out our lives. In fact, we recognize, though we may say we believe in God on the one hand, that we live in this world, and in this world, it's really just me versus all of the rest of you. Me and my tribe versus you and your tribe. And that's the way that we experience the world more often than not. It's a survival of the fittest kind of world with limited resources, limited things, limited, uh, a limited pie, so to speak, and we have to claw and scrape and scratch to get our, our piece of it. And so one of the virtues of the world that we live in is self-sufficiency. This is a virtue. This is something to be paraded around and to be sought after in our lives, to be self-sufficient, not needing to depend upon someone else or something else, but being self-sufficient. And those who have really made it, those that we lift up in our world, are those that are entirely self-sufficient. They're able to, to live life on their terms and to do life as they want to do it. In the, in the world that we live in, in the real world, it's people that are the real movers and shakers. It's people that get things done. It's institutions that get things done. It's not God. It's, it's people who are the ones that make things happen, that accomplish things. And there are certain uh, sanctified, set-apart means by which we get things done in this world. Education would be one at the top of the list. Technology would be another one. Advertisements or propaganda of some kind. Legislation or good old-fashioned money. These are the ways ordained by our world that we experience to get things done. But this world that we find ourselves in, where belief in God is, is almost uh, everywhere present, but the effects of that belief are seemingly absent or marginalized, this world that we live in produces a lot of despair. And I, I would say you could just agree with that for just a minute with me, that the reality is, is that the world that we encounter sometimes produces a lot of despair. And, and a lot of what we do in, in, uh, in face, faced with that despair is we turn to amusement or to distraction. 
That's the way that we, sort of, we medicate ourselves in a world. So we've got neon lights, we've got lots of activity, lots of images, lots of sound bites, and these are the things that get us from one hour to the next sometimes. And um, we look to these things to, to enable us to, to get things through. And if ever those things are taken away and we're left for just a moment to deal with ourselves as ourselves, by ourselves, it can be a pretty scary place, actually when we start to look inside and say, what really is going on in my life in this world? So it not only produces a lot of despair, but the world that we live in produces incessant rivalries as well because of the fact that, that we are left to ourselves, me and my tribe versus you and your tribe. And so everybody else's tribe becomes a threat to my own interests and my own security. And so it's a world in which we see conflict after conflict, rivalry after rivalry, and competition rules the day. It's also a world where we find bucket loads and more bucket loads of worry and anxiety. This world that we, that we live in, this real world, tends to produce a lot of anxiety and worry. This is the, the thing of our age so to speak. Their resources perhaps are more readily accessible than they ever have been. Anxiety is perhaps more present than it ever has been, certainly at least in America. So this is the world, the real world, that we find ourselves living in. And I think we could all agree that we do at some level as human beings experience these things of despair and of rivalry and of anxiety pretty commonly in our lives and the way that we live the way that we view the world and understand the world. In Philippians 4, Paul speaks of another way. He writes of another way. He writes instead of a world that I've just painted, of a God-infused life. A God-infused life. And he holds this up in a, in a revolutionary kind of way to a group of people living in a world much like the world that I've just described. Though I've been describing 21st century American context, there's a lot of similarities between that and the first century Greco-Roman world in which Paul is writing this letter to his friends in Philippi, this little church in this Roman colony in ancient Mesopotamia or ancient Macedonia. And he's writing to them and he's saying there is a different way there's another way to live. In this world of despair, he commends to them joy. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. In this world of rivalry and dissension and cutthroat competition, where we scrape and claw and push down to get what we need, he commends gentleness or forbearance or considerateness or meekness to all. In this world that's filled with anxiety and worry where you don't know what's going to come next. You're not sure if you're going to get your next meal. You're not sure if somebody's going to come beating down your door and throw you in prison. He commends this still and quiet trust. This peace of the soul in a world of uncertainty. And I want you to note from the text, he doesn't just commend these things in the good times. He doesn't just commend these things to the good people, the people that are nice to you. And he doesn't just commend these things in the insignificant circumstances of your lives, but actually in the most major and significant real-world circumstances of your lives. Listen to these words in chapter 4, verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord how often? Always. Rejoice in the Lord always. Verse 5, let your reasonableness be known to everyone, not just to those who are nice to you. 
Verse 6, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So he's covering all of life in this world that we find ourselves in by these words of always, everyone, anything, everything. This is a comprehensive vision of reality and of life that Paul is setting before the Philippians in everything. And we ask, well, how can this be? How is this possible to rejoice, to let our gentleness be known to everyone? To not worry? What do you mean not worry? To not be anxious? When I suffer, perhaps when my my health has been taken away from me, when I'm wronged by somebody unjustly, when somebody treats me unkindly, when somebody um, lies about me or cheats from me or steals from me, when the stock market crashes and I'm not sure or about the future that I thought was so certain or the security that I thought I had, when I, when I lose my job, how can these things actually become a reality? When I can't make my rent next month, and I don't know where that's going to come from. Thinking about it in our context there for just a moment, think about it in the Philippians context. When they literally are being persecuted by the authorities in their colony because they are following one called Jesus, they're following a different way. When they don't know what, whether they will have security, when there's no bill of rights and they aren't guaranteed a fair trial. They knew what it was like to live in a world like this. And look at Paul's, what he says in verses 4 through 7. I just want you to see how God-centered his vision of the world really is. How God-centered his understanding of life and of reality really is. He says, rejoice in the Lord, for the Lord is near. Present your request to God, and the peace of God will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. There's no understanding what Paul commends here to to the people to whom he's writing outside of an understanding of the priority and the basicness and the reality of God. God infused reality. God at the core. God as the rock. God as the anchor. God as the foundation to all that they are and all that they could ever hope to be. And not just any God, but the God who has literally rescued them from a life of futility, from a life of despair, from a life of, rival, of rivalry, from a life of, of, um, of anxiety and of worry. A God who's come into that world and who's taken upon himself the pains and the burdens and the trials of that world in a very poignant and, and personal way to come and to rescue them out of that world into a different world, a God-infused world, a God world that's real, and that makes a difference in the day-to-day, Monday mornings, Wednesday nights, Sunday mornings, Sunday nights of our lives. The God who's rescued. The God who's restored them to life as they were meant to know it. A God who's brought about some kind of inner and, and, and deep restoration of the purpose of their lives and redeemed them from futility. A God who has adopted them as members of his own family by virtue of this great love. Who said, you're not going to be orphans in the world, left to yourselves, to fend for yourselves, to fight for yourselves, but I'm making you part of my own family. 
this glorious doctrine of adoption where God calls us his sons and his daughters and makes us his own people. This is the God in whom this way of life can be lived and that Paul is commending. It's the God who watches over those who are in his family. The gospel reading tonight is one of my favorites. The God who clothes the lilies of, this, of the field. The God who feeds the birds of the air. This God knows your needs. Oh, you of little faith. This God will provide for you. So don't scrape and claw and scratch and consume yourselves to clothe your body and to feed your body. But trust in him because he knows your needs and seek first his ways, his kingdom and his righteousness. And he will take care of you. He will take care of his own. This is the God that Paul centers the Philippians life and our life in. And it's the God who is not distant, remote, removed. But as verse 5 says, the Lord is at hand. He's at hand spatially. He's close by. He is near. He's not uninvolved and unaware, but he's present to his people. He's here. He's with his people. This is the God. And this God changes literally everything about life as we know it. He changes it in every way so that I am no longer on my own, but I belong to this God. I belong to him in the deepest and most intimate way that you could ever belong to anything. You belong to this God more than you belong to your spouse with whom you're one flesh. You're united with this God. You're his own and he's jealous over you. He longs to know you and he, he exists to protect and love and defend you even when you don't feel like it in this world. There is then in this God joy because as we sang, he has done great things for us. We've looked at this at several points in the last several weeks. He has done great things for us and there is joy so we can rejoice in the Lord always because he has done great things for us. And this joy that we have in a God who is rescued and restored and made new, this joy then is manifest in a gentleness to all people. This word brings with it images or, or resonances or echoes of, of the way in which Jesus, the one who was meek and lowly, walked into the world, surrendered his own rights, as Paul's already been writing about in, in chapter two, gave up his own rights, what was rightfully his, so that he could begin to lay his life down for others around him. This gentleness that arises out of the joy that we have in God is a gentleness that is shaped by knowing deeply that God is for us. And if God is for us, who can be against us? Not even my enemies. So I can then begin to give and be gentle and reasonable and forbearing with everyone around me, is what Paul is writing about here in chapter 4. And then in this world of uncertainty and in this world of trial that we all face every day of our lives, not one of us in this room doesn't fight anxiety and worry every day of our lives. I think I can say that as a human being. We all do. But in, that, in this world that we know is uncertain, we are submitted, we're submitted, we're released to the sovereign, fatherly care of a God who owns the cattle on a thousand hills. And we can be anxious about nothing. About nothing. 
we can reject anxiety. You, you know, it doesn't mean what Paul's writing here, this vision of a God-infused life, doesn't mean that you don't have and I don't have reasons for being despairing or reasons for being in contention with other people, for being revengeful, for being a rival. And it doesn't mean that you don't have reasons to be anxious. I have no idea, by and large, what's going on in the lives represented in this room. No idea what news you just got last week or what phone call you just had this morning or what trial that you're facing in your life that maybe only you know about. You have reasons. I have reasons. We have reasons to be despairing. We have reasons to be contentious. And we have reasons to be anxious and to worry. But the whole point of what Paul has been writing about in this letter to the Philippians is now being brought to bear in these few short verses that are almost like staccato statements and imperatives and, and, and calls to them. Is he saying, you've got a deeper reason to be joyful. You've got a deeper reason in your life to be gentle. You've got a deeper reason to not be anxious and to not worry. There is something that is deeper about you because you find yourself marked by this cross of Christ. You find yourself sealed by this badge of faith in the Lord Jesus who died for you and who rose again. There's a deeper reason for you to embody this God-infused life in this way in the world. And yes, it's hidden to the world around you. And yes, it's hidden to you more often than not. But it's real. And it's there. And it defines your reality. That's what Paul is saying. So I came across this quote that puts this into good words from a French cardinal in the Roman Catholic Church in the earliest earliest early 20th century. He says this, to be a witness does not consist in engaging in propaganda nor even in stirring people up, but in being a living mystery. But in being a living mystery, he explains, it means to live in such a way that one's life would not make sense if God did not exist. To have joy in the midst of despairing world to be gentle and meek in a world that's clawing and scratching and scraping. To have a deep heart level peace and calm in a world of uncertainty is to live in such a way that does not make sense if God does not exist. To be a living mystery. 1758, Sarah Edwards gets news in her... Um, Home, uh, was it Stockbridge, Massachusetts? Shortly after her husband, Jonathan Edwards, the great American theologian, moves to go take up the presidency at Princeton College that he had passed away. At the age of 54, she was 48. They had spent much of their lives raising children, to get, raising children together, serving the Lord together, laboring side by side together, seeking to live out this God-infused life in a world that was uncertain and unknown. And she gets this message. And so she pens a few words. She was ill at the time, but she wrote these words to her daughter Esther back in Princeton, who had just been widowed the year before. Her husband was the, prince, the president of Princeton. He died and her father came to take his place. And then he died. And she writes these words, which illustrate for us what this God-infused way of life 
uh, at least sounds like in the midst of an incredibly trying circumstance. She writes, Oh, my very dear child, what shall I say? A holy and good God has covered us with a dark cloud. Oh, that we may kiss the rod of reproof and lay our hands on our mouths. The Lord has done it. He has made me adore his goodness that we had him so long. But my God lives and he has my heart. Oh, what a legacy my husband, your father, has left us. We are all given to God. And there I am and love to be. Sarah Edwards. What she didn't know is that Esther, her daughter to whom she wrote this, would die before she received the letter. And that she, her own self, would die six months later from an illness that was unrelated to theirs. But she says these words, we are all given to God and there I am and long to be. There, there is no safer place to be in a world of uncertainty than to be rooted and, and in the clenched fist of God, rooted and deep on this foundation. Christ, the solid rock, I stand as we sang before. And this is what this perspective of a grieving widow leaves for us. This place of security deep in the hands of a God who is sovereign over all things. So let me say this as we bring things to a close. This way, this God-infused way of life that Paul is commending in Philippians isn't automatic. It's something that is learned. It's something that is grown into. It's something that we mature into. And I can point simply to the fact that Paul sees the need for him in writing to his friends in Philippi to exhort and encourage them to this way of life. That means even in his own mind, this isn't automatic, but he is encouraging and exhorting his brothers and sisters in Christ, his friends in Jesus, to live in this way in the midst of the world that they find themselves in. And we need these kinds of exhortations too, don't we? It's so, it's so easy for us to be just tied up in knots by anxiety. It's so easy for us to not have the joy of the Lord who has done great things for us, defining and shaping our demeanor and our disposition in any and every circumstance. It's so easy for us to lose sight of the reality of God in a world that's saturated with belief in God. It's just so easy in this world. So we learn this way of life and we learn it in this favorable context known as the church. This revolutionary body of ragtag, good-for-nothing, sinner people like us that God has called into his family to be his children and to bear his message to the world that needs to hear it. We are this revolutionary family. We believe in this God being present and near and in his ability to care for his children. And so we come into this place and we get these exhortations, don't we, in word, here and in sacrament, in the visible word of the table, of the Lord's Supper, in the visible word of baptism and being buried and given a new identity in Christ. And so in the church, we're constantly hearing these exhortations to a weary people that know this is who you really are. And this is who God really is. And these things are real and true. And you can bank your life, entire life on it this week. And we come back and we do it again next week. 
So we learn this way of life in the context of the revolutionary people of God in a world where I am an island and alone. We belong to a family that proclaims a God who is real and present to his people. And we learn this way finally by cultivating the language of intimacy with God that is known as prayer. Verse 7, verse 6. But in everything, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests. Let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God that surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This way of prayer, when we pray, and this is again in the church that teaches us how to pray, that does pray, that's what we do when we come together, we pray. When we pray, we are taking a stab at the virtue of our culture of self-sufficiency. When we pray, we are acknowledging a dependency upon a God who hears our prayers and a God who can act in our world. When we pray, we're fighting against that practical atheism that says everything in this world depends upon me and I'm the mover and I'm the shaker. And Paul knows this and he commends this in, in the end of this section. He says to pray. Fight this anxiety by prayer. Come into the presence of God. Bring your lived life with all of its issues and anxieties and despairs and rivalries. Bring that life into the, into the presence of this very God who is real. Bring it before him. Lay it before him. Cast it before him. And in so doing, be reminded of his power and of his presence, his nearness, and of his steadfast love that is gathered around you to make you into his image. Prayer fights self-sufficiency. And do it with thankfulness. Thankfulness is an expression of creatureliness or of dependency. Thankfulness as well says, these things I have are not from my hard work. They're from God's bountiful and good grace. So he commends prayer with petition, with thanksgiving. And this is a language, this is a way that we learn in this revolutionary body of the church. So we hear the exhortations and we learn the language of learning this life of a God-infused reality. And what does Paul say? He says, as we turn to God in this kind of dependence, as we reject the world that we live in that says you're alone, and as we cling to this God in faith, in the community of God's people, and by prayer, what happens? The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding. Yeah, I know you have reasons to be despairing today. I know that you have reasons to be mad or a rival to someone, to compare yourself and to be competitive. And I know that you have reasons to be anxious. But Paul says this peace of God, it surpasses all of those reasons. It surpasses all understanding. And he promises, he promises that God will guard our hearts and our minds. These places where we're constantly berated with thoughts that say, I'm alone. God doesn't care. God isn't with me. God will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus that you might grow into this living mystery, this life that cannot be explained apart from the grace and love of God existing in your life and in the world. Amen.